Theo, good morning. Happy Monday. Hello. How, how are you all this morning? Find a seat. You Great to see it? you all. Couple of announcements before we get going. One is that on our website, we have added a new tab. I know, I know, just calm down. Everyone calm down. Yeah, it's big news. We've added a new tab to the website. The tab is called Resources. And what are we gonna put on the Resources tab? Well, we're gonna put on, uh, put on that tab all kinds of things. Like, if there's some big piece of information that somebody mentions uh, from the stage, like, oh, a book that you just absolutely have to read or something like that, we may put a little section there that includes just additional things that are not on the syllabus, but they may be something that you want to check out if you're just super interested in it, but also things like resources that you have available to you here on campus. We know that this is the part of the semester that's usually the, the tough part of the semester. You all will do this several years in a row. We, this is our regular lives, and we can let you know that this is the part of the semester. If it's feeling kind of like tough, it's because it is for most people. And there are a lot of campus resources available to you, whether it's uh, health services, whether it is uh, writing services. There's a lot of things that are available to you. We want you to know about them. So we'll put that up there. We'll put a link to the Theo study guide just to make sure people can always find that in one spot under resources. Maybe we'll put up some musical links from our course playlist, et cetera, et cetera. Who knows, okay? Yes, and uh, speaking of that, Dr. Doak and I, we're committed to you. We did our homework this weekend, and both of us listened to Jesus is King. Oh, yeah, like five question times. Up, yeah, question yeah. came up uh, from earlier. What did we think of okay, Jesus is King? Okay, but wait, let, let's get to that in Have a moment. Yes. Let me ask you about another thing that came up, though. Dr. Payne is yes. an historian by training. That's her academic field, history. Yes. There was a question in the panel on Friday that I thought was, was super fascinating. And we did answer it, but I just thought it's so fascinating for purposes of history. Why not dredge it up again? Namely, are there references to Jesus outside of the Bible in the first century or second century AD that, that, that would somehow prove that Jesus was a real historical person? Or do we just have the Bible? How does that work? And how might an historian think about that, Dr. Payne? Oh, sure. Well, I have kind of a two-pronged answer for you, mm. and then I'll kick it back to you to see what you think. Um, so one of the most famous attestations of the life of Jesus outside of the Bible um, is from a guy named Josephus in a famous uh, book that he wrote called Antiquities of the Jews. He was a Jewish uh, historian in the ancient world, and those existed then as uh, now. And he, there are a couple of different references to Jesus. One is sort of a, met, uh, a reference about him in passing, and then another is um, a reference to the followers of Jesus who were erroneously blamed for a big fire in the city of Rome. And in the ancient world, Rome was the capital of pretty much everything would be like New York and Washington, D.C. combined throughout the, the ancient uh, Western world. And so it was a really big deal, and Christians were blamed for it. So those are a couple of the um, accounts of the life of Jesus that we get from the ancient world. But one of the things that I think is interesting, and these are the kinds of questions that historians like to ask, is why aren't there more references to Jesus? We all know who he is. Uh, in this room, and we are learning more about him. Why wasn't there more in the ancient world? And I think one of the important things to note about that is because the life of Jesus was actually kind of surprising. Like, 
There were a lot of figures in the ancient world that were referred to as messiahs, anointed ones. There, it was a time when people were looking uh, for a, a figure, a, an anointed figure. And um, the, uh, the fact that he and his followers are the ones that we remember the most, that would have been kind of surprising in the early uh the, the early era, the first and second centuries, uh, because it wasn't clear that uh, hi, hi, this person of Jesus, his claims and the claims that his followers made about him, that those would stand the test of time, and yet here we are. So one of the kind of amazing things about it is that we actually uh, remember, and it, and it is in large part because his followers uh, collected his teachings and the stories of his life, and they passed it down uh, generation after generation, and here we are. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, totally. What you said, that's <laughs> what I think about that. Um, but this is the kind of thing that we could put a link up to if people wanted to do more research on this kind of thing under our resources tab. And so that's, that's the level at which if people wanted to kind of dive deeper into some of the topics and do that, we will definitely keep providing it. Okay, nerds. it's time for a two-minute album review, Kanye West, Jesus is King, okay? Has anyone listened first. to the album at all? Okay, I'll go first. Uh, yeah, I mean, I listened to it about five times. I don't know if that's enough. It's a very short album. I mean, I think the criticism of the album already that I read out there is that it's maybe like some of the concepts could have been developed further. Some of the songs could have been longer. There could have been a greater range of lyrics and topics. I will say that I went into it kind of like thinking about the lyrics. I'm like, ooh, okay, so he converted to Christianity. I'm looking at the lyrics. I want to have this like intellectual experience. What is he saying about faith? And I found for me, at least as a listener, that was the wrong approach to the album. I, I mean, I think a lot of it was about ecstatic, you know, a, a kind of ecstatic musical experience, about people screaming hallelujah over and over again, and about the music, about the drums on that, on that second song, which we were playing in the opening playlist. And so when I gave myself over to it emotionally in that sense, mm -hmm. that's when I deeply connected with it. What about you? Wow. Well, I'm a, I'm a big gospel music fan. And so I was, I, in my mind, I, I compare Jesus is King to like Kanye West's earlier stuff, you all were like two years old, I think, when College Dropout <laughs> came out, but that was like a really big deal, and it was like, whoa, who is this person, and this is amazing, um, and then uh, and all, then I compare him to gospel music, so as a gospel album, I wasn't as big of a fan of it, uh, because of where that sits, um, but in terms of his own personal arc, I found it to be fascinating, so where he's going, he's so autobiographical in his right. lyrics. And, it's very and personal. Stuff. It's a very personal Yeah, album. and so if you compare, you know, album to album, I think, and, and I just think he's like a mad scientist. Like, yeah. he's, he's just this very creative and very transgressive. Like, he, he's always saying something that's making people mad. Right. So, you know you got to pay attention to somebody who's like that. Yeah, and so to bring, the, to bring those talents and that artistry to an album about Jesus is super fascinating. So give it a listen. It's a clean album, a totally clean album if you're worried about lyrics and things like that. Um, so don't worry about that. Uh, give it a spin. Kanye West, Jesus is King. Come and tell us after <laughs> class what you all yeah, thought of yeah. it. We want to know. Um, okay, speaking of Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, we're going to add some more words to our creedal recital today. It's coming fast now. Um, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. So we're adding the words his only son this week, okay? You got that? Write that down. His only son. And we have a lecture that we have seen before. Dr. Melissa Ramos, PhD from UCLA. She's an expert in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. So we know she has a lot of knowledge to bring about the biblical context of Jesus. What does it mean actually for Jesus to be God's son? Does God have a son? What does that even mean? How can we deal with that? Dr. Melissa Ramos is our speaker today, and so we're, we're really excited about that. 
Yes, and uh, before we introduce Dr. Ramos, who is, in addition to being a great biblical scholar, something of a fashion icon a fashion in icon. our department. Yeah, she's got great jackets. Uh, but anyway, before we introduce Dr. Melissa Ramos, will you join us and recite the creed? I believe. Please welcome Dr. Melissa Ramos. Have you ever wondered why the stories in the Gospels, stories about Jesus, don't seem more like a Marvel Studios movie? If Jesus was and truly is the Son of God, shared all of God's divine power, why don't we read about, for example, Jesus flying from Galilee to Jerusalem, or appearing and disappearing, or lifting a building and throwing it from one side of a village to another, or using mind control to make people believe in God, or run with superhuman speed? I don't at all mean to sound irreverent about Jesus. I have actually honestly wondered about this. Because if Jesus had done these kinds of things, wouldn't it have been easier for people to believe that he was the Son of God? For example, if instead of giving the Sermon on the Mount and preaching, blessed are the poor, what if Jesus had just flown up into the sky and then come back down? Would people have been more easily convinced? Would they have listened more? Why don't we see the Son of God displaying spectacular superhuman powers in the Gospels? Or maybe we do, but they just don't quite look like that. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Today I want to argue that it means two things, temptation and transfiguration. Christian tradition asserts that Jesus, who is given the title the Christ, or the anointed one, the one anointed with oil, Christian tradition asserts that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. Jesus was fully and completely human as the Son and divinely blessed with the authority and power of God as the Son of God. The claim that Jesus was human and divine is unique to Christianity. Now, sometimes students ask me, they ask me this question, what's the difference between Christianity and other monotheistic faiths like Judaism and Islam? These faiths have many things in common, actually. Judaism and Christianity share the Hebrew Bible that we call the Old Testament, and we add the New Testament to it, but we do share this as a holy book. And the Quran also includes some of the narratives and figures we find in the Old Testament, like Noah or Abraham. And all of these faiths emphasize things like justice and prayer and caring for the poor. So is Christianity any different from these other two faiths? Well, yes, it is. And one of the most distinctive elements of Christianity is the belief that Jesus was not only an ordinary person, not just an important rabbi, the way that Judaism understands Jesus, or that Jesus was an important prophet, 
the way that Islam understands Jesus, but the claim that Jesus was the Son of God and was and is God. This is unique to Christianity. It's distinctive and it's somewhat scandalous. It seems to me that people who are not Christians, who don't proclaim to, to hold a Christian faith, they struggle a bit more with the idea of the divinity of Jesus. Tend to view him more as an ordinary person that might have had great ideas, might have had an influential following, but at the same time, it seems to me that Christians have an easier time understanding Jesus as divine, but maybe we have a harder time understanding Jesus as fully human. But Christian faith asserts that Jesus embodies this paradox. Mortal human flesh embodied by the presence of the living God. It is actually a bit hard to get our heads around this, this paradox, but we're going to try it today. We're going to explore it. And some passages from the New Testament help us think through why it's important to uphold both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. The narrative of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, narratives about Jesus healing people, and even raising someone from the dead, and the narrative of Jesus' transfiguration before his disciples. Maybe you know these stories, you're familiar with them, or maybe not, maybe they're entirely new to you. I want to start with temptation. Temptation is a universal phenomenon, a human experience. It happens to everyone, and it happens to us on a very regular basis. Temptation seems to happen in the deep recesses of our humanity, and the parts that aren't actually all that logical. We might ask the question, why are we drawn to things that destroy us? Why are we drawn to things that destroy people we care about? Why do we sometimes feel an inexorable pull toward things that are bad for us, and we know they're bad for us? Or even drawn to people we know are bad for us? Perhaps another form of temptation is when we're drawn to people who are too much like us. Every one of us in this room right now, in this moment, can think of something, something that we have done or something that we're currently doing that we know is bad for us or is hurting us or hurting someone else. And even in our logical minds, if we know it destroys us even just a little bit or even in the long run, we have this experience of being drawn and in this experience of temptation, we are not alone. Jesus, in his full humanity, also experienced temptation. Perhaps even on a grander, grander scale than we do, since more was at stake for Jesus. And more power was at his disposal. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 4 tells a story of Jesus before he began his public ministry, a story about Jesus in the wilderness. 
In Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit because Jesus had, just in the prior chapter, been baptized by this mysterious figure, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. And so Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and returns from the Jordan was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the desert, where for 40 days, the text says, he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing and all of those 40 days, and when they were over, he was famished. The story gives us three temptations of Jesus. Now, in the narrative, the, this figure of the devil comes to Jesus three different times, and although the figure of the devil does appear in the story, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about him, because he doesn't, in fact, seem very important to the story itself. But three times, the text says, Jesus was tempted by the devil after his 40 days of fasting. The three temptations are these, bread, power, and avoiding circumventing death. In the first temptation, the devil says to Jesus, if you are truly the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Now, honestly, when I heard the story growing up, I didn't really understand what this temptation was about. If Jesus had already fasted for 40 days, why was one more such a big temptation or a big deal? Why didn't he just find a nearby house and, and ask for some bread? Wasn't there some other kind of solution besides turning a stone into bread? So I struggled to understand this text. But since then, I've realized that the problem is not the text. The problem is me. The problem is me reading this text from a position of privilege. I've never really, truly been hungry, unwillingly hungry, with no solution, no way to solve the hunger, so hungry that a stone looked tempting. But what if we consider this text from the perspective of someone who is hungry? Not by choice and not by circumstances that they have any power to change. Then maybe we start to understand this temptation and the choice that Jesus makes. Because Jesus, in choosing to remain hungry, is choosing not to use his divinity to escape the hunger. And that is a powerful message. Jesus chooses to remain in his humanity instead of allowing his divinity to usurp this moment. And when Jesus does this, when Jesus chooses hunger, Jesus expresses solidarity with those who are hungry. For every person in the world right now who's hungry in this very moment, with no solution and no place to turn, Jesus says, I am with you. Jesus rejects the choice to use his divinity to escape from one of the fundamental aspects of being human, being hungry. Jesus stands in solidarity with those who are hungry and don't have a choice to change that. 
what if, what if, we read this text as Jesus standing in solidarity with those who have an uneasy relationship with food? What if we read it like Jesus was choosing to be with anyone who struggles with food in one way or another? Maybe some of us, maybe many of us in this room at some point have experienced an uneasy relationship between food and body image. What would it mean to read this text as Jesus choosing to stand in solidarity with those who struggle with mental health around food? What if we read this text as Jesus choosing to stand with those who struggle with an eating disorder? So that when Jesus says no to, to turning the stone into bread, Jesus says yes to the full experience of being human, to struggling with even the basic components of life, like eating, mental health around eating. Jesus chooses to stay inside the struggle, to keep wrestling with it, even when he could have found his own way out. And in this way, Jesus chooses to be fully present with us in our humanity. And furthermore, Jesus refuses to use his divinity to benefit himself. But I'll come back to this idea. In the second temptation, the devil showed Jesus in a flash all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, to you I will give their glory and all authority if you will worship me. It will all be yours. The temptation of immediate access to power and authority, the temptation of ambition. And maybe this temptation feels more relatable to us because we're all tempted to find ways to be regarded as more important than we really are, to have a life that appears more epic than our actual ordinary life. Maybe this is everyone's Instagram account on some level. But it's not that success or achievement is wrong in any way. Excellence is something that honors God. But the desire for recognition, that inner fantasy world where everyone suddenly recognizes just how awesome you are, even more human is our desire to put ourselves before anybody else. To make our dreams, our ambitions, our hopes more important than the needs of others. To use any power or gifting that we have to further our own ends instead of to serve others. This temptation also makes more sense if we know something about first century Palestine, Palestine in the time of Jesus, Syria, Palestine was under political and military occupation by the Roman Empire. In the world of the ancient Mediterranean, the Roman Empire is often portrayed as a time of progress and Rome as an agent of peace. And that's why this period is sometimes termed the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. Because after all, the Roman Empire brought economic stability 
flourishing trade, especially maritime trade in the Mediterranean. The Romans brought jobs, especially in the construction of buildings, highways, even aqueducts. And yet, the New Testament also portrays Rome as an evil power, entirely opposed to the purposes of God. The heavy taxation, the constant military presence, rule by a foreign power, these were oppressive and burdensome. Not only this, but the Roman practice of worshiping the emperor as a god was deeply problematic for Jews and for Christians. Now, in North America, it's hard for us to imagine a foreign state occupying us. It's not part of our political or everyday reality. Imagine with me for a moment that Newburgh was full of tanks, guns, helicopters patrolling. But while we sit here in this comfortable, air-conditioned classroom, there are places in the world where war and terror and fear are ordinary, everyday life. In the time of Jesus, Jerusalem and Palestine, they were churning with sentiments of revolution, and they were fast-growing. And only three decades after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, only 30 years later, a full-blown revolt was underway, where Jews band together to overthrow Rome from Jerusalem. The battles were fierce. They went on for years. But eventually, Jerusalem was subdued again by the Roman Empire. And the second temple was burned to the ground. Jerusalem lay in ruins. But in our narrative of Jesus' temptations, revolution was just a brewing sentiment. And the devil comes to Jesus a second time and offers him power over all the kingdoms of the world if he will worship the devil. Now perhaps this context of first century Palestine and Roman occupation helps us to connect with the text a bit more. Was Jesus tempted to put an end to the people suffering under Roman occupation and just claim political power? Was Jesus tempted to avoid the suffering of the cross and death that was to come? Jesus' followers were fully expecting him to reestablish the kingship of Jerusalem, to restore power and autonomous self-rule to Jerusalem and Israel. Was Jesus tempted to give his followers what they wanted, what they expected? Could it be true that sometimes the thing that seems like the right thing to do is really the wrong thing to do because it's short-sighted? Because Jesus was called to a place of power, of rulership, but in the kingdom of God, not an earthly kingdom. It's in the ascension of Jesus, when he is taken up into heaven. That's the time when Jesus claims his rightful place to rule, the right hand of God, as the Son of God. Jesus' way was antithetical to seeking power, to seeking glory, to wanting recognition or authority from others. 
Jesus' glory would be found in the cross. Not in political systems of power and not in human accolades. In Luke 4, we read about a third time that the devil tempts Jesus. In the third temptation, the devil leads, to, leads Jesus to Jerusalem and takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. This seems to be some sort of a vision experience since Jesus is presumably still in the desert. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And the devil then quotes Psalm 91 and says, for he, meaning God, will command his angels concerning you to protect you. So what is this temptation about? First of all, why does the devil take Jesus to the temple? It helps to know a little bit about Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. The first temple built by Solomon was destroyed in the Neo-Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem in the 6th century BCE. The temple was later rebuilt by Judeans who had been exiled into the Neo-Babylonian Empire and who returned to Jerusalem. And initially, the second temple, it was not an impressive structure, but hundreds of years later, not long before the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great ruled Jerusalem as the client king of Rome. One of the things that Herod was known for was a truly impressive building program in Jerusalem and in other cities. He built a palace for himself. He built an amphitheater. One of the things that Herod is best remembered for is this project in which he refurbished and rebuilt the second temple in Jerusalem as a beautiful, a lavish structure. We might recall a passage from the Gospels where the disciples traveled to Jerusalem with Jesus and they ooh and they ah at the temple because it was a magnificent piece of architecture. The temple also sat on the highest point of Jerusalem. Now, partly this is because of natural topography, but also the temple that was rebuilt by Herod was on top of what's called the Temple Mount. The Herodian Temple Mount, it's still standing in Jerusalem, so if you go to Jerusalem, you can go see it. If it's a good day in Jerusalem, you can go up uh, and, and walk on it. And the Temple Mount is its a massive structure. It's about the size of 15 football fields. It's huge. And the Temple Mount is, uh, the retaining walls of the Temple Mount were, were 80 feet above street level in the first century. That's more than twice the height of this auditorium. No one would survive falling 80 feet down to the Cardo, which is the Roman road below the temple. But the temple was also the most public place in all of Syria-Palestine in the first century. Anything that anybody did in the temple was highly visible and entirely public. So when the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and invites him to throw himself down 80 feet to the road below, he's inviting him to a public display of supernatural power, an invitation to invoke divine protection as the Son of God. So I want to come back to the initial question that I asked. Why don't the Gospels look more like a Marvel movie? Why doesn't Jesus just throw himself off and then fly? 
or, or jump off to be caught by angels who carry him, gently set him down at the bottom. This would have proved very publicly in that moment that he was the son of God, that he was the inheritor of divine power. But Jesus refuses the opportunity to create this public spectacle. He refuses to use his divine power to thwart the death that was coming, very painful death on the cross. Jesus refuses to use his power for his own personal benefit, to gain recognition. He refuses to use his divine power to defy death, to seize control of political power, or even for a mouthful of bread when he's hungry. Because divine sonship was not about these things. So then what is divine sonship about? Well, let's examine some of the places in the Gospels where Jesus' power is revealed. In the temptations in the wilderness, Jesus refused to exercise his divinity, to make bread for himself. Instead, Jesus revealed himself as the son of God when he turned five, just five little loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed a crowd of more than 5,000 people. In the temptations in the wilderness, Jesus refused to exercise his divinity to seize political control over Jerusalem or to reclaim the land of Israel that had once been the seat of Davidic kings, his ancestors. Instead, Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God to fishermen with a miraculous catch of fish so big that it, it broke the nets that were bursting with the fish. Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God to a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years and had spent her whole life savings on doctors. This woman had been on her period for 12 years. Imagine 12 years on your period. If anyone needed a miracle, it was this woman. And she was healed by touching the hem of Jesus' robe. Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God to Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus had died. Jesus refused to exercise his divinity to thwart death for himself. But he revealed his divinity when he entered into the tomb of Lazarus, who had been dead for three days. And Jesus went into the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus got up and walked out of the tomb, very much alive, was embraced by his sisters. Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God to Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, whose daughter, his little girl, was dying. In the temptations in the wilderness, Jesus refused to exercise his divinity to thwart death for himself. But Jesus revealed his divinity when he entered into the home of this 12-year-old girl, and he said to her, little girl, get up. And she did get up, and she went downstairs and rejoined her family. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus was revealed 
as the Son of God when he took Peter and John and James up on a mountain to pray. While Jesus was praying, suddenly the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly Peter and James and John saw two other men, Moses and Elijah, men who had been dead, but they were talking to Jesus. Peter and James and John, they were trying to figure out what was going on, what to do. They offered to set up tents for Moses and Elijah in case they want to stay. And a cloud came over them. The Gospel of Luke says that they were terrified as the cloud came over them. And then they heard a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah were then gone, and Jesus looked as he had before this. But Jesus had been transfigured before them, transfigured from his ordinary human form to reveal his divine form. Both natures of Jesus, human and divine, captured together in the personhood of Christ. But what does the sonship of Jesus mean for us? This question, in fact, might be a little more difficult for women to think about. Because the imagery of sonship, or also the imagery of fatherhood, it's more exclusively male. Women are not sons, and this requires a bit more translation for us. In fact, reading the Bible more generally requires more translation for women readers. Because the Bible, after all, was written mostly by men, for other men, and the Bible contains very few women characters, I'm teaching a class at Portland Seminary this semester, and I asked a question of my class, it was an introduction to the Old Testament class, I asked them, is reading the Bible fundamentally a different experience for women than for men? All kinds of hands went up at that question, and the women in the class had a lot of things to say about this. One of my students, gave an amazing illustration in response to this question. And I, I emailed her and asked for permission. She gave me permission to use her illustration and her name, so this one's for you, Heidi Kwan. Heidi said that reading the Bible for women is like walking into a room full of lasers and trying to dodge them all to try to get to the other side to try to find meaning. Not very many women characters. That's a laser to dodge. Trying to translate male characters to apply to women's experience, that's a laser to dodge. Women characters that we do find in the Bible are sometimes portrayed negatively or terrible things happen to them. That's another couple of lasers to dodge. But does this mean, as some claim, that, that we shouldn't read the Bible because it's sexist? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible is just as meaningful for women readers as it is for men readers. But it would help a lot to have some help navigating the room full of lasers. It would really help us as women to have people that we trust, pastors, youth leaders, professors, dads, brothers. How great would it be for you to help us navigate or even try to see the lasers so that we don't just give up and leave the room and leave the Bible behind? And if you really want to help, but you're not sure how, maybe you think, oh, this is a great idea, maybe I want to help, but I'm not sure how, I have a suggestion that I'll just throw out to the wind. What about a men's Bible study on the book of Ruth? 
How many women in the room would like to see a men's Bible study on the book of Ruth? Yes, the women in the room have spoken. Um, and in that experience, try to identify the characters of Ruth or Naomi, not Boaz, because that's cheating. That's just, this is just one example, right? But if somebody does it, if someone starts a men's Bible study for the book of Ruth, oh, I hope that you tell me. Send me an email, find me in Canyon Commons, because I'll be like the happiest person. And this is also why we need more women in ministry, women theologians, women Bible scholars. In your discussions this week, part of the reason why I bring this up is that um, our great moments in theology reading for this week is by uh, a Bible scholar named Wilda Gaffney. And she's one of the more influential uh, newer Bible scholars of our day. Reverend Dr. Gaffney is an Episcopalian priest and she is a womanist scholar. Now the the term womanist refers to a scholar who interprets the Bible according to African-American women's experience and perspective. Now, I've chosen this reading as another example of ways to help women navigate the room full of lasers and to read the Bible in a way that's meaningful to us. Let's come back to this question of what divine sonship is about, what it means for us. Why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of God? Why does it matter that Jesus is fully human and fully divine? It matters that our God fully and truly understands us, understands our hearts, our souls, but even understands our bodies. And Jesus shows us what it means to be fully and gloriously human. Jesus shows us what it means that we're created in the image of God, male and female, in God's image and likeness, when Jesus resists creating bread for himself, but multiplies it to feed thousands of others. That's when Jesus is both fully and gloriously human and divine, transfigured as the image of the divine. When Jesus refuses to use his power for his own gain, his own recognition, but uses his power to heal the suffering of a little girl, a man born blind, a man with a withered hand, a man who's paralyzed, and a woman slowly bleeding to death. When Jesus refuses the temptation to avoid his own death with a spectacular display of God's rescue, but instead embraces death on a cross, in that moment, Jesus is fully and gloriously human. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain before Peter and James and John, then Jesus is fully and gloriously human and fully and gloriously divine. And maybe when we refuse the temptation toward whatever darkness beckons to us, maybe in that moment, When we resist, we are more fully human. Maybe when we resist the temptation to feel or be important and instead choose to make someone else feel valued or important, maybe in that moment, we reflect more fully the image of God. Maybe when we resist the temptation toward selfishness, toward things or words that harm others, Maybe when we instead choose to do things that bless others 
secretly and quiet. Not for recognition. Maybe in that moment, we are more fully human. Maybe in that moment, we reflect more fully the image of God. Maybe when we allow ourselves to be touched by the suffering of others, when we choose to see it, not to turn away. And maybe when we offer help to others with their burdens, maybe in that moment, we reflect more fully the image of God as the light of God shines through us. Thank you.